Hear now the word of God. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks to put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time... They saw no misfortune come to him. They changed their mind and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, you have placed us in these bodies, in this world, for a purpose. A purpose that is yours to decide and not our own. And so I pray that while we may often feel like this life does have so many sufferings and challenges, I also pray that you would give us submissive hearts always asking ourselves how it is that we can live out your purpose for us while we yet live. Show us how to do that today by your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week in our reading, Paul and the crew were shipwrecked. You'll remember the crew was 267. All of them survived. And this week we find out that the island that they were shipwrecked on is called Malta. And among the inhabitants of the island are these natives. Now, in the Greek, Luke calls them Barbary, which we get the word barbarian from that word. And to, to these people, that's exactly what they would have seemed to be. Uh, they, but they do something very unbarbarian like don't they? They show hospitality to this shipwrecked crew. And it seems like, you know, it doesn't seem like that great a gesture, but it actually is for them to make this fire for them. You could imagine how important that would be after weeks spent at sea, weeks without heat, weeks in the cold, weeks drenched with rain. 
And yet here they are, and what do they have? One of the most pleasant things they could possibly ask for, a fire. And as Paul is helping with the fire, the snake comes out, this viper, Luke calls it. He bites Paul. Everyone sees it. And it's this fascinating moment, isn't it? That the people who live on this island look at Paul. And they look at what has just befallen to him, and immediately their response, according to the text, is, no doubt this man is a murderer. They think the sea is pursuing them. They think him. They think that justice, this impersonal force, is going after uh, Paul and going to hunt him down and trying to kill him any way that's possible because this man must be a wicked, terrible sinner. And actually, even though a lot of things happen in the passage, even though the passage does conclude with them arriving in Rome, I actually want us to spend our time on this event, this event with the snake and the fire, because there is some deep material here if we're willing to look. Not only do we have an opportunity as we look at this moment to examine ourselves, to examine the ways that we think about our own theology, The sort of things that we do believe that maybe we often don't want to admit. But we have an opportunity to see the nature of God's grace, especially toward Paul and even toward us this morning. If I asked you the question, do you believe the prosperity gospel? You might say, no, I don't. Or you might say, yes, I do. And if you, uh, if you give the right answer, it's what is the prosperity gospel? What do you mean when you use that phrase? prosperity gospel. If I could summarize the prosperity gospel, at least the way that I'm going to speak about it this morning, it is sometimes called the health and wealth gospel. Maybe you know it that way. And the prosperity gospel, and I think its most basic form teaches, there is an inextricable connection between our spiritual practices and our worldly or material success and health. In other words, if you're a godly person and you do godly things, then you get material things. And if you do godly things and you have spiritual practices, then you're going to be a healthy person. And so what it looks like in practical terms is sometimes you will see this promise. If you give to this or that ministry, God is going to take the money you give and he's going to multiply it. Or you see it in the promise that if you just believe hard enough, if you just pray hard enough, If you just live holy enough, God is going to make you healthy. Or maybe you see it in the promise that if you just do enough, if you just believe enough, God will heal you of that serious disease that you are dealing with right now. Now, this is a Reformed church. This is a Presbyterian church. Typically, we do not have much of a reputation as a church that teaches the health and wealth gospel. I think that's fair to say. Uh, And I suspect if I went to most of your houses, there aren't going to be a long shelf full of Benny Hinn books or Kenneth Copeland uh, books or something by Creflo Dollar, probably. Um, You know, if it involves a TV preacher telling you that they're going to make you rich, I think most of us and knowing most of you, I think that you know better than to listen. And yet we still may believe the message of the prosperity gospel, The, the core assumption That if we love God enough, we're going to be spared pain or suffering. The belief that if if we're good people, if we're gospel people, those bad things won't happen to us. 
See, we may look down on the people on the island because they think, they're naive enough to think that this snake bite means that Paul is a bad man who's a murderer. But we should remember that in our worst moments, we may actually believe the same things about the world and about ourselves and about reality. One of the most popular ways that people today, not even Christians, just people in general in the world, especially in 21st century uh, Western world, we believe in the prosperity gospel is actually through the resurgence of this idea of karma. Um, Karma is the the belief that if you do good, the universe is going to give you good. And if you do bad, you'll experience bad. Um, And you maybe hear it in different ways. Maybe you don't hear it with the word karma attached. But have you ever heard the phrase, what goes around comes around? Or the phrase, you get what you deserve. Or when something happens to somebody, someone says, he had it coming. Maybe you've said these things before. It is actually, I think it's really strange. We live in this society that tends to, in public at least, not acknowledge God, not believe in God, um, and who deny that hell is real. They deny uh, so many things that are essential Christian doctrines, and yet so many openly believe in karma. As if they, they, they can't understand why it is, but they're sure that there is justice at the core of the universe. There's a Twitter feed called Instant Karma. It's dedicated to catching people doing bad things and instantly suffering the consequences. Uh, There's one where there was a man standing on ice and a dog was walking past. He tries to kick the dog. And guess what happens to the guy standing on ice? This is an Internet video. You know what happens to the guy. He falls down on his tuchus. Instant Karma. Right. That's the name of the video. Uh, There's another one, and it's of a matador, and he's in the ring with the bull, and all these people are there to watch this bull get publicly slaughtered, and what does the bull do? He jumps into into the stands and starts goring people in the crowd. Instant karma, right? You guys were all here to watch him die. Now he's here to kill you. Um... There's another one. There's a security video of a man. He grabs a woman's purse and immediately runs into traffic and gets hit by a bus. Instant karma. And, you know, these these are supposed to be for entertainment. And yet there is something in these videos that resonates with people. And maybe you think, well, this is just for modern people. This is just for new agers. But the reality is evangelicals will claim that they know why bad things happen when they happen. It's not unusual for evangelicals to see something take place and to say, this no doubt is the judgment of God. I remember when the earthquake hit Haiti and reduced almost the entire island to rubble. And uh, one of the claims, and that earthquake, by the way, crushed churches, killed pastors, killed parishioners, killed missionaries. All sorts of people were affected by it. And one prominent evangelical leader said, well, this earthquake happened because it was judgment from God because the people of Haiti practiced voodoo. The same man, when the Midwest experienced a rash of tornadoes in 2012, said the reason this happened was because there weren't enough people praying. And if more people had prayed, the tornadoes wouldn't have happened. The same person said that when 9-11 happened, that it was judgment on various social ills and evils that were happening around us. And that is actually very common for Christians to do, to see a disaster, to see something terrible take place, and to say, I know why that happened. 
really very similar to these barbarians on Malta who look at the snake hanging from Paul's hand and they say, I know why this happened to him. This happened to him because he must have been a murderer and he deserves the death sentence. If we look at world events and try to read the judgment of God back onto those events, we may not acknowledge it, but we believe the prosperity gospel and we do believe in karma and we do believe, like Job's friends, that there is no innocent person who ever suffered. And the passage this morning, if it is saying one thing, it's saying that's not true. What they don't know is this is a faithful gospel minister standing there. And he stands there with a clear conscience. We cannot look at another person's situation and read the judgment of God onto it. We don't know the precise reason why the earthquake happened in Haiti. We know ultimately why. We know that it happened under the providence of God. But there's no immediate event that we can look at in Haiti and say, I know for a fact, without any doubt, I know exactly why this disaster happened. We can't say that. And we can't say the exact reason why the snake latched onto Paul's hand. We can always say ultimately we know why, because in the providence of God, he decreed for this snake to latch onto Paul's hand. But we couldn't say that it's because... He was a murderer. We don't know why so many things happen in this life. Just like we don't know ultimately why all the terrible things. Well, we know ultimately why, but we don't know the immediate reason why everything that happened to Job happened. And the message of Job and the message of this moment with Paul is clear. Innocent people do suffer. This is different than admitting that that we are sinners and that without the fall and without sin, suffering wouldn't happen. It is absolutely true that if it weren't for sin, suffering would not happen. When Adam and Eve took the fruit in the garden, they were told, in the day that you eat of this, you will die. But it is a mistake to say that when specific sufferings happen, it is always because God is punishing people for some specific sin that we think we can spot or identify. So we need to stop being superstitious about bad things that befall people because the truth is in this life, things are unfair. Innocent people suffer. Children die. Guilty people succeed. Sometimes they have extraordinary success in this life. And what I have noticed is that even though many people do not believe in God, or at least they don't believe in the Christian God, they believe strongly that the universe is a just place. And yet one of the major lessons of the book of Job is that karma is not real. Sometimes people are good and they have terrible things happen to them. And sometimes people are horrible, evil, wicked, liars, and they can go to incredible heights in this world and achieve amazing worldly success. So karma is a lie. We should reject it. That's the first point this morning. But there's another way that we can believe the prosperity gospel in our lives, and that's in the area of wealth. That's in the area of of money and finances. Now, I, I, I don't really mean that we think sending money to this or that TV charlatan is going to make us wealthy. I think most in this room do not believe that. But there are hidden and surprising ways that we can believe that wealth is connected with our own personal holiness. I'll give you an example. Uh, I used to work for a very successful businessman, worked for him for a number of years. And I remember one day we had finished a hard day's work and we were leaning against the wall, sort of looking at all of the work that we had had achieved that day. 
And, and he said to me, he said, I didn't earn any of this. God did this for me. I'm so grateful. And if he'd only just stop there. <laughs> so far, so good. He's acknowledging this is from God. But then he said, I believe God has given me this success because I've honored him in my life and I put him first. And immediately I just thought to myself, that's a mistake because, but we can believe it, right? Do you believe that, that if you put God first in your life, that he will honor you, that he will make you rich, that he will give you a successful business? There are counter examples to that. I knew another person who also loved God, honored God, put God first in his life, started a business, put everything on the line for this business, trusted God that he would take that little bit that he put in and that he would multiply it. And within two years, he was bankrupt. He lost his house. He lost all of his assets. Was the first businessman more of a saint than the second one? From everything I could ever see in his life, no, no, not at all. The reality is, and the lesson here is that sometimes wealth happens to one person and it doesn't happen to another. And sometimes poverty comes to those who are deeply committed to the Lord. Poverty is no indicator that somebody is an unholy person. Um, Brian Fickert wrote a book called When Helping Hurts. And in that book, Brian Fickert, in the big picture, he's trying to deal with the question of how do we help those who are in poverty? Especially he's writing this for the church and he's saying, when people come to you for help, how should you think about how to help them? And he's talking about the causes of poverty. And this is one thing he says in the book. And it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I think you'll find it very interesting. He says, if anybody dares suggest to me that the poor are poor because they are less spiritual than the rest of us, I am quick to rebuke them. I immediately point out that the poor could be poor due to injustices committed against them. Yet all, yet all of this notwithstanding, I was still amazed to see pen, uh, people in the slums of Kenya who were simultaneously so spiritually strong and so devastatingly poor. Right down there in the bowels of hell was this Kenyan church filled with spiritual giants who were struggling to eat every day. They shocked me. At some level, I had implicitly assumed that my economic superiority goes hand in hand with my spiritual superiority. This is none other than the lie of the health and wealth gospel, that spiritual maturity means financial prosperity. And if you look in the, in, in the scripture, one of the things that you see that gets taken from Job is his wealth. Now, in the ancient world, you didn't measure wealth by how many coins were in your purse. You actually measured it by your flocks. So when the Bible says that Abraham is fabulously wealthy, what does it do? It tells us how many flocks he has. And in the book of Job, that's what happens as well. Job is fabulously wealthy, and yet what happens? He loses all of his animals. He loses all of his finances, for lack of a better word. And, and in this instant, every penny that Job had was gone in a poof of smoke. And we know from the book of Job, it didn't happen because Job had committed some serious sin. It wasn't judgment because he hadn't given his sacrifices. It didn't happen because he wasn't praying enough. It didn't happen because he was harboring some secret sin in his heart. The lesson of the book of Job is it just happened. It just happened. And God knew why. And God understood the purposes and the reasons for it. 
But the answer that God gives is not, Job, you've been a bad man. Job, you've fallen short of my law. You've fallen short of my will. No, his response is, God says, I'm the one who's free, Job, and you are the creature. And if some of us had been watching Job's situation, I suspect we would have been like Job's friends. Job, this happened to you because you weren't a wise financial manager. You shouldn't have kept your flocks all in one place. You should have diversified. Put some flocks over here. Put some flocks over here. Put some flocks over here. If you only understood how to be a godly person, Job, these things wouldn't have happened to you. And I think the reason, the reason I think this is true is because we may not follow TV preachers and we may not follow highway robbers praying upon the sick and the old, but in our own way, we may be secretly holding on to the belief that money or wealth comes to those who are good and straight-laced and follow the rules. And poverty is something that just happens to people who are foolish and sinful. And we need to get rid of that idea. We must be careful not to try to read intention or judgment back on God's providence, even when it comes to the area of wealth. Now, final area where we secretly, we do secretly believe the prosperity gospel, or at least we may, is in the area of health. Uh, I've watched time and time again as television preachers have met people truly in the depths of helplessness and despair and told them God was going to heal them. Uh, Very recently, I was just sort of reading up about this and saying, where is America in 2019 when it comes to prosperity gospel? And just this year, there was a story of a blind man who had received donations to get a much needed eye surgery. After he had received all the donations, he he decided he was going to step out in faith and go and see a televangelist. He took all the money that he had for the treatment. He went to the televangelist and, of course, he still cannot see and so it's like I keep saying, we might, we might reject this sort of thing and say, well, that guy was a fool. He shouldn't have done that. And we might see this sort of thing as silly. Uh, of course, God, God won't heal someone just because they give money to this one guy in a, in a really nice suit. Uh, but we may still buy into some of the assumptions behind this. When, when Paul gets bitten by the snake... The assumption and the belief of these men who have watched Paul receive this life-threatening injury is this man is going to die because he had something that he's done and he cannot escape from it. First, justice tried to kill him with a shipwreck. Now it's trying to kill him with a snake bite. And they say, I know why this is happening to him. And they say, Paul's health is tied to his virtue. If he was only a good man... If he only hadn't done this terrible thing, this wouldn't have happened. And we can believe this. Even if we have sound theology. I I know somebody, trying to be vague. I I know somebody who was visited by a Presbyterian minister in the hospital. And the minister told him, he said, if your wife would pray and really believe he was convinced that God would take away the, the spasms that were rocking her body in pain. And he was convinced that this was something that was in her heart and in her mind. And if she would just trust God, then this situation would resolve itself. By the way, blaming physical suffering on spiritual faithlessness is the definition of spiritual abuse. And it happens. It happens. And if someone's ever told you that before, I want you to know that's what that is. 
Now the reality was not that this was a prayerless and faithless woman. Her body was in pain and she had medical problems that God had chosen not to heal. And what had happened was this minister had placed an impossible burden upon her when he in essence said, if you would only believe, if you'd only really pray and pray hard enough, this will get better. That is an extraordinary burden to place upon a suffering person. And when we believe that, when we believe that Faith necessarily will heal. We have something in common with Job's friends who all believe Job had something to deserve all those sores that covered his body from head to toe. Job, you aren't praying enough. Job, you aren't believing enough. Job, you aren't confessing enough. Job, you have something in your past. You need to open the vault and show us what it is. And you need to tell God what it is. So when it comes to health, we can make the mistake of confusing natural consequences of sin with God's judgment. There is no doubt there are some notoriously wicked people who live to a very old age. Hugh Hefner lived to 91 years old. He didn't exactly keel over at the age of 25. And yet we can think of examples of righteous people who died at a young age. One of the truly great preachers in the history of Scotland was Robert Murray McShane. He died at the age of 29 from typhus. Was the founder of a pornographic empire more righteous than Robert Murray McShane? I certainly hope none of us would say yes. (laughs) I feel safe in saying that. And he outlived him three times over. There are worldly consequences to poor and even sinful decisions when it comes to money, when it comes to health. And yet there is no way for us to look at someone's health and know what is going on in their heart or what has happened in their past. Because the truth is health health disasters take place. Snake bites happen. Heart attacks happen. Shipwrecks happen. To even seemingly healthy people. Cancer happens to folks of all stripes and it's so common. Paul, if you weren't so wicked, that snake wouldn't have bitten you and you'd still be with us. You see, I think there really are sort of hidden ways that we do believe the prosperity message that spiritual health means good fortune, wealth, and health. Even if we don't send our money off to somebody promising that our gift is going to multiply a thousand times over. What does all this mean? For starters, it means this. If you are healthy, if you are doing well financially, if things have gone well for you in this life, we should be humble. We should be humble. We should never assume that God has chosen to honor us because of something good in us, because of something that we have done, or because of something that we have earned. We know there are extremely wicked people who have had everything in their life work out just the way they always wanted it to. And that is not a sign of holiness. So we should be grateful. We should be humble if we have good in our lives. If God has been gracious to you, then live with gratitude, but not pride. Because the flip of that is this. If you've led a hard life, if you struggle financially from paycheck to paycheck, if your health has been in a cycle of pain and hospital visits, you should never be burdened by the fear that you have done something against God. 
It is not necessarily true that you've done something egregious and you deserve to suffer. No doubt. We all live in a fallen world. And if we're not for sin, it would not even be possible for us to suffer. But we live in the world that we live in. We experience pain. We do experience suffering because sin is very real. And there is not a sinless person in this world. All of us suffer one way or another. But you can never get to the bottom of, without knowing God's will, of knowing exactly why God causes some evil people to have an easy life and some good people to have a hard life. Prosperity is no mark of God's approval, and suffering is not a mark of God's judgment, necessarily. I want to point out one more thing. As we look at this moment with Paul, as we look at this moment where the snake attaches itself to Paul's hand, here's the irony. These people are accidentally right about Paul, and they're wrong about his suffering. Because, see, If you look into Paul's past, if you go back far enough, if you go back to the book of Acts chapter 9, you see him breathing out threats against God's people. Later on in the book of Acts, he takes responsibility for the death of Christians, for his own persecution of them in his past. You see, they are accidentally right about Paul. They don't know what he is now. They don't know what he's become now. They don't know that he's a righteous man now. But they do believe that there is something in his past, and it turns out they are accidentally right. That snake isn't there to take his life. He survives. The shipwreck wasn't there to kill him. It was there to take him all the way to Rome, which it did. See, they assumed the wrong thing from the snake bite. Justice isn't coming for Paul. God isn't judging him because his judgment fell on another. No doubt this man is a murderer. When they say that, I wonder what goes through Paul's head. I wonder if he hesitates and looks. Almost a knowing glance. You almost wonder if as the snake is dangling from his hand and he hears them say this, if it goes through his mind, you know, by all rights, I do deserve death. I did take the lives of God's people. I was rescued from that, but I really was guilty. This snake hanging from Paul's hand is a perfect picture of death for those who are in Christ because it stings and it hurts and people see it. And there's some shame to it, right? There's something shameful about death. And yet, death isn't the end of us. That snake bite isn't the end of Paul either. And someday you and I will die. Unless Christ returns before, we will die. And just like that snake bite, it it, it might hurt. It's probably going to hurt. Death is not a pleasant thing. But yet, get this. The snake doesn't get the final word. And death doesn't get the final word. Here's the beauty of grace. It makes life not fair. That's why I don't believe in karma. Here, Paul, a murderer, someone who stood nodding over the lifeless body of Stephen, a man who considered himself the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church of God. And yet he stands there living with a clean conscience, a perfect picture of the gospel. Because he's known the gospel. He has seen the gospel. He has experienced the gospel in his life. He knows it to be true. Our God does not deal with us according to our sins. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. Let's pray together.
Our Lord and our God, you do not deal with us according to our sins. You treat us so much better than justice demands. We thank you that we don't live in a universe of impersonal laws where we always get what we deserve. In Christ Jesus, you've shown grace where we don't deserve it. So give us humility. Give us grace to love you and believe that things may befall us. Pain may come. Success as well may come. And yet when you give us good, it's by your grace. And when we receive evil, it's better than we deserve. Would you help us to have your perspective on these things in our lives? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.